This week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, I think the most important thing, especially if you're younger or you're starting off or you really want to do nasal surgeries is, you know, the evaluation is everything. You want your patients to be happy after surgery. So you want to make sure you know what the problem is because you want to make sure that the solution you have is going to help them. Nobody wants an unhappy patient, right? Like you don't want to do a septoplasty on somebody that has like allergies because they're still going to have allergies after surgery and then they're going to have an unhappy patient and nobody wants that. So, you know, when it comes to the nose, there's enough stuff going on in there that you just got to have to look at it from an anatomical medical standpoint and really just figure out, you know, what's the best way to help this person. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT Podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was curious and wanted to know what all the hype was about. I had heard it advertised on other podcasts, and I had had uh, known some other people who started drinking it, and I was like, you know, what's this all about? Now that I've been taking it for several months, I find that I look forward to taking it in the mornings. It's starting to replace my coffee, believe it or not. I take it on empty stomach and it just feels like I am, you know, complementing the other healthy behaviors that I like to work into every day. Gopi, you want to tell our listeners, you know, what is this stuff? What is this AG1? Wow, it's uh, 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. I don't know about half of what those are, but they are they they make me feel better, and um, they're uh, make me feel like I'm actually contributing to a, like you know making sure I have a whole all the nutrients that I need in my diet. Do you um, how do you like to mix yours? You know, right now I just do water, about 10 ounces, two ice cubes, two or three at most, and then put the powder in and just shake it up. I find that if I do too many ice cubes, it stays a little clumpy. But if I don't do enough ice cubes, it's not cold enough. Mm, gotta have what about that. you? Do you do it in water, juice, a smoothie? I like cold water, like about 12 ounces, you know, so on the, on the, um, higher side and um, a couple of ice cubes of water and then I give it a real good shake like I'm like I'm shaking up a martini or something you know yeah. um, and then <laughs> at 7 a.m. <laughs> at 7 a.m. just like a chick 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 and um, and then I'm out the door and you know I feel like it's becoming like a, a necessity you know it's like a important part of my day. I also like that it contains one uh, less than one gram of sugar no GMOs no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. So I like yeah. it. How do they do like that? The companies. Huh? How do they do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, it's time for you, our listeners, to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition, uh, nutritional supplement like AG1. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash backtableENT. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash backtableENT to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, back to the show. Quick introductions. My name is Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT in Dallas, Texas. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT. How are you doing this morning, Ash? Wonderful. How are you, Gopi? I'm good. I'm good. It's 103 degrees oh right gosh, now. Oh my gosh, it's so hot. It's so and it's going to be that way for as long as like the foreseeable forecast mm. is. It's like 100 mm. every single mm. day already in June. Thankfully, so. we have centralized AC. It's hot. Well, we have an awesome show today. We have Dr. Mustafa Murad. He's an otolaryngologist and facial plastic surgeon practicing at Murad NYC Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery in New York City. He specializes in head and neck oncology and reconstruction, facial reanimation, and nasal surgery. Dr. Murad is here to talk to us today about nasal valve collapse. Welcome to the show, Mustafa. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Mustafa, do you want to first just tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Yeah, so uh, I'm here in New York City in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, my practice is located on 60 Person Park. Uh, I kind of have a broad 
practice scope. I do everything from head and neck cancer, free flap reconstruction to cosmetic surgery, uh, rhinoplasty, facelifts, blepharoplasty. It's what I really enjoy about facial plastics. There's a broad range of things that you could do. So yeah, I do it all, the whole spectrum uh, from a free flap to a rhinoplasty. And I, I also take care of cancer patients. So it's always been a pleasure and an honor to take care of them. Awesome. So today we're going to focus on um, talking about um, nasal obstruction and um, specifically the nasal valve. Why don't we just start by talking about, you know, how you how you evaluate those patients and remind um, myself and, and go and be myself, like, <laughs> I'm like the nasal valve. I'm like batten. Like, what are we I like? I, you know, this is over 10 years for me. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, let's just start off with the, what the valves are. So there's two sets of valves in the nose. There's your internal nasal valves, which are made up of the upper lateral cartilages and the dorsal septum and also the septum and the inferior turbinate. So that's the internal nasal valve. And the external nasal valve is essentially the tip cartilages, which is the lower lateral cartilages. They both kind of function in a valve-like way. It's funny because, you know, in pre-med, we take all these like physics classes and we don't understand like, why do we have to learn physics? And I'm sure you guys are like, I don't remember anything about physics. But if you remember physics and some of the aerodynamic stuff, you're pretty well equipped to handle and understand nasal valve pathology. So uh, when it comes to evaluation of nasal valves, basically uh, the most telltale sign of a nasal valve collapse is dynamic nasal airway obstruction. Uh, what I mean by dynamic is essentially the breathing is affected by uh, a couple of things. One is the breathing can get worse the deeper you breathe in so that the, the nostrils or the external nasal valves begin to pinch or they... Uh, Structural improvements in the nose uh, will improve the airflow. So if you pull up on your cheeks, that'll also help the internal nasal valves get a little bit stronger and allow a lot more air to pass in. But these are structural problems. Uh, and it's really kind of, you have to kind of parse things out and try to determine, you know, is this like a deviated septum? Is this allergies? Is this polyps? Is this internal valves? Is this external valves? So the valuation can be pretty, pretty in depth. And is it common that people have more than one thing? You know, where it's like they have the they have the valve problem, but they also have allergies and they also have this. I mean, I feel like that's I feel like that's a lot of what I see. Like maybe it's not just one thing. Right. So like breathing is multifactorial and it's uh, I always sit down with my patients and you kind of have to do a really thorough evaluation, you know, figure out what it is that's bothering them. But, you know, it's not uncommon to have a deviated septum and some allergies. Uh, it's not uncommon to have maybe some internal nasal valve collapse and, you know, a deviated septum. So you have to kind of sit down and kind of ascertain, you know, what's the most impactful part of your nasal airway obstruction and what's the best kind of correction. Sometimes it could be sprays, sometimes it could be a procedure, but, you know, everything has its own kind of weighted uh, impact on how you're breathing. And then as far as um, for nasal valve collapse, is that something that would potentially get worse with time? Like, because when I think about some structural things, like a deviated septum, most people have had that same septum for years, maybe, right? And maybe now it's causing more issues because they have more swelling in their nose related to allergies or something else, right? Or maybe they say, I've never been able to breathe out of the left side of my, my nose, whatever, I don't know. But like with nasal valve collapse, is that something where it's like, I've noticed in the last few years, like that, you know, I can't really breathe at night. And when, if I wear some breathe right strips or pull up on my face, it's better. Or is it, you know, maybe it was always like that and now it's just, you know, it's kind of like the way the septum is where it's like um, now it's a little bit worse. So I would say it's definitely something that probably could get worse with time. You know, it's probably maybe something you didn't have a while ago and then things happen. You might have had nasal trauma that impacted the nasal valve area or just general aging. You know, the nasal valves are constructed from cartilages. And as we get older, those cartilages get weaker. So, you know, they're not the same strength as it was in your early 20s or early teens. So, you know, in your 30s and 40s, you might begin to realize that, um, you know, my nose pinches when I breathe in or I try and run on a treadmill. Uh, so just aging in general will lead to uh, worsening the nasal, nasal valve structure and it impacts everybody differently. Uh, some people have stronger intrinsic cartilages. Some people have weaker intrinsic cartilages. So everybody kind of, you know, evolves you know, accordingly, uh, according to their anatomy. But, you know, it's definitely something that can develop over time just by 
sheer aging in general will make your balance get worse. You know, everything kind of droops. Gravity yeah. pulls everything down, even the internal and external <laughs> nasal palates. Blame it on aging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you see this though? And you had mentioned nasal trauma or perhaps like the, you know, do you see this in younger patients, like young adults or late teens ever for the kids that may have had nasal trauma early on or, or maybe, you know, some sort of septorhinoplasty when they were, you know, 16 to 18 and now they're, you know, 28. Do you have that history as well or those risk factors? Yeah. I mean, uh, Demographics, the risk factors will change based on demographics, but, you know, one of the most common causes of nasal valve collapse that I see in my practice is for, you know, patients that have had surgery before and the nasal valves weren't appropriately, you know, managed. So, you know, they had a dorsal hump reduction or, you know, some kind of internal procedure and they didn't address the nasal valves. So that's a very common one to see in like people in their 20s and 30s. Older patients in their 40s and 50s. I typically see, you know, that haven't had surgery. They just have general aging and weakening of those cartilages. Also trauma. So people that have dorsal trauma impact the internal nasal valves. I've seen people that have gotten nasal tip trauma where they get dislocation of the nasal tip cartilages and that will cause nasal collapse. And one of the, you know, most important thing that I've seen for patients uh, having valve collapse is like athletic people. So people that were athletes and, you know, in their teens and early 20s, you know, they use their noses a lot, whether, especially swimmers, you know, they're, you know, they're blowing air against pressure a lot through their mouth and their nose. And what I've come to realize is when they get into the thirties, forties and fifties, their, their just nose has been weakened. The cartilages are super weak. So I get a lot of like very athletic people who are like, oh, I could run all the time. And now every time I get on a treadmill, you know, my nose pinches closed and I can't breathe. And that's a lot of just inherent intrinsic weakening of those cartilages. Uh, so that's one of the, the the biggest causes that I see too. I think it makes sense, like just thinking about those cartilages kind of, you know, bending over time, just like if you, like the more you apply that, um, that stress, it just kind of weakens, weakens, weakens. So if you're someone who's done more of that, then it would maybe present earlier. I think that makes sense in my mind. Well, that's kind of like the whole point where I was making about the physics. It's like when you breathe in, you know, you're increasing the airflow through the nose and it creates a pressure gradient. So the fast moving air that goes through the nose is the lower pressure and the uh, more stagnant, slow air on the outside of the nose is higher pressure. So the, the nose will intrinsically, the air will want to push from the outside of the nose to the inside of the nose. So it creates like this pressure gradient that it weakens over time. It's like air is constantly pushing down on the outside of the nose. And the more you breathe in, the faster the air you move in, the more it pinches over time and that just weakens it. Yeah. Are certain people, you know, with thinner cartilages more at risk? Like is it is are women more at risk than it than men? Or, you know, is there a certain type of nose that's more at risk for a developing collapse over time because it's just like thinner cartilages? Yeah. So a lot of Caucasian patients uh have thinner cartilages. Uh well it depends on which, you know demographic of Caucasians, but you know, ethnicity definitely will impact the strength of those cartilages just in the same way that it impacts like the length of the nasal bones or so, uh, ethnicity plays a factor. Also the, the intrinsic, uh, structure of the actual nose. So the orientation of those cartilages will definitely impact, you know, how those, those nasal cartilages function and evolve over time. So patients that have cephalically oriented, so, you know, pointing more upwards nasal cartilages will certainly develop external nasal valve collapse over time. So what you'll notice is their noses will start to droop and they'll develop kind of like this beak-like appearance to their nose as the, as those cartilages uh, weaken over time. So the orientation, the structure, ethnicity, you know, I don't necessarily see a difference in gender, uh, male versus female, but you know, any, anything that impacts, you know, the strength of a cartilage or the way the shape length uh, will always impact how that nasal cartilage evolves with time. That makes sense. And I would imagine, are the presentations pretty similar between like if somebody has a really bad internal nasal valve collapse versus external nasal valve, valve collapse is the main issue, nasal obstruction, and it's pretty similar? Or are there certain nuances in the history? Uh, I would say there's, there's, there's different nuances. Um, you know, just strictly talk about internal nasal valves. When somebody comes in and they have internal nasal valve collapse, you actually kind of alluded to this. You know, they'll say things like, I have to pull up on my, my, my cheeks to like get some air in. 
I have to sleep with breathe right strips. Uh, my nose feels like it's, you know, just, I just can't get air through my nose and I have to do these things structurally to improve it. That's really, you know, this, the, the skin of the cheeks are connected to those upper lateral cartilages. So anybody that says I have to pull up here on the, on their cheek skin, it's a telltale sign that it's like an internal nasal valve issue. External nasal valve, people usually come in with a different kind of set of complaints. They'll say something like, you know, I can breathe okay usually, but when I exercise, I can't breathe. And it's when I breathe harder through my nose, I can't breathe really well. Well, and then you're like, okay, well, is this exercise induced like rhinitis? No, I don't get like any discharge or discomfort or congestion. It's like, I can't breathe. You know, your nostrils pinch and they go, yeah, that's what happens. Like I can't, you know, get the air through and the quicker I breathe through my nose, my nostrils pinch down. So that's usually like a very strong telltale sign that the external valves are very weak. And um, when they're using their nose a lot, their, their nostrils are pinching. So that's the, usually the two different types of uh, presentation. Are there any other specific questions that you like to ask to help tease things out? Or is it just kind of like the main things that we would ask any nasal obstruction patient? It's usually the, you know, you, a lot of times it's the same stuff. You want to make sure like, okay, is the one side or both sides? Does it alternate like alternating congestion, you know, is usually allergies or some kind of medical related issues, but you know, everything plays together. Everything kind of has like a stronger impact on that breathing. So in your job is kind of like as a detective is to try and figure out, all right, well, what's the most efficient, best way that I could help you in the immediate term and the long term. But ultimately, yeah, you just have to take a really thorough history and just think of it from an anatomical and medical standpoint. And then what's your physical exam like? Are you scoping all the patients? Uh, yeah. So uh, I always start off by asking. So I scope all my patients. But when it comes specific to the internal external nasal valves, I'll have them just breathe at baseline. Tell me about your breathing, you know, scale it on one to 10, 10 being like the best breathing ever, one being you can't pass any air. Uh, and I get a baseline for uh, either nostril and I do this decongested and regular. So I also decongest them after, uh, and do the same kind of exam. And then I'll do a couple maneuvers. One is I'll lift up the tip and see if that helps. So where does that bring you on the scale from one to 10? Does it take you from like a three to a five? Cause that also can, you know, be very indicative of, uh, you know, external valve collapse. And then, uh, I also, you know, do a modified or a caudal maneuver where I, you know, pull up on the cheek skin and say, where does that bring you on the scale? Uh, doing it congested and decongested also kind of helps in, you know, figuring out some of the medical related issues. Then I have them take like a deep breath in and I look at the nose. Is it pinching? That's, you know, also a very telltale sign of external, uh, nasal valve collapse. And then what I do is I take their photos and then I map their anatomy, their surface anatomy to their internal anatomy. And I'll do that with them. So I'll draw out. I'll take their photo, put it on a screen, and I'll start to draw, draw out those cartilages. So if those cartilages are cephalically oriented, I'll show them and I'll, you know, map that out. And I can, you know, have a pretty strong suspicion that, you know, they have, might have some external valve issues. Or if they have like an inverted V and there's a mid-bolt kind of pinching, then I'll, you know, correlate that with internal nasal valve. So it's, it's a pretty in-depth process, but I think it really helps you get to understand the patient's really really their nasal anatomy and, you know, the nasal pathology that they might be suffering with. Mm -hmm. That's really thorough. Um, that's great. Do, do you I know? I'm like, I would love to have that drawn out and mapped out. That's amazing. <laughs> and I assume, you know, with their response to Afrin, you know, if they're like, oh, wow, that, Af you know, that stuff's great. Can I get some of that? That's, you know, it's much better. Would you, you know, correlate that with turbinate hypertrophy or allergies or something less related to the um, nasal valves? Yeah. So if like the, uh, well, one is that the internal scope exam changes with the Afrin, like they might go from like these pale boggy turbinates to like, you know, pristine, um, then, you know, there's definitely some medical, you know, vasodilation and, you know, irritation, but yeah, if their if their response to the Afrin is disproportionate to the response to just the physical maneuvers of like, you know, lifting the tip up, lifting the cheek skin up. Uh, then I would certainly probably try them on medical therapy. And usually I try them on medical therapy if they have, you know, some kind of medical thing or in their history, like they do have bad allergies or, and they've never been on like a Flonase or a steroid, because even if you have all of this stuff, it might be just that the allergies are pushing you over the head. So you might have internal valve collapse, external valve collapse, but then you give them some steroids and just reducing those turbinate sizes will make them, you know, feel Good enough that they could avoid a procedure so that's usually kind of my my protocol unless you know 
they have zero allergies and their your mid bulb is totally pinched and then we might go straight to a procedure or something. Yeah. Sometimes you have those patients that are like, I've tried it, I've tried it, I've tried, I've tried all the things. Right. I'm here <laughs> for you to exactly. fix this. <laughs> Which is actually probably the majority of my patients is they come in, they've been on steroids and sprays and irrigations and or they've had a procedure in the past that's failed. Um, one of the biggest things that I see is uh, external valve collapse after septoplasty, which I think is actually a really important thing. I don't know if uh, been written up. I haven't found, you know, there's this, a small series, I think that was in uh, the ENT clinic journal, but you know, a lot of patients will go in and they'll have like a deviated septum surgery. And after the surgery, they say, I could breathe better, but I'm still obstructed. And I think it's kind of a failure at the pre-op evaluation point. If you think about it, you know, if their septum's really deviated to their left, you know, and they breathe in, uh, there's hundred percent obstructed. They can't move any air. Then they have the septoplasty and now they can move. It's hundred percent open. They can move air in, but now that, that pressure gradient of like air is passing through the nose and now their nose is pinching. So I see a lot of patients that have had septoplasty and they go in and they think they need a revision septoplasty, but instead they need their external valves, you know, addressed. So it's kind of like, you know, you have to look at everything and it's like playing a game of chess. Like you're like, all right, well, if I do this and, you know, get this medicine or do this maneuver in the procedure, then, you know, what's the nose going to look like and how is it going to behave after? And you got to anticipate all all the things that come at you. So when you do a septoplasty, you have to definitely make sure that you're looking at the valves, the external valves, not so much the internal valves, because, you know, usually if the deviation's that bad, you know, the internal valves are okay after and they're pretty open. But yeah, it, it's a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> <laughs> How do you, when you're anticipating, okay, this patient might have external valve collapse after septoplasty, are you looking, because when you're looking at them breathe pre-op, they're not moving air through that side, so they're probably not going to pinch. Are you looking at the contralateral side and say, oh, that side, you know, does, you know, come in and pinch a little bit? Maybe, like, what are some some signs that to tell you, okay, this this person is at risk? I'm going to have to quit my job. You already know what I'm doing. <laughs> so, yeah. I want to tell all your things. secrets. <laughs> tell all my secrets. Well, I'm telling you guys all my secrets, but, um, yeah. So, I look at the other side. Yeah, but we uh, don't draw the way you draw. Oh, yeah. That, that's you. That's yeah. You. <laughs> I, maybe I have too much time with my patients. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll, uh, I'll look at the other side. And if that, you know, one is that side can just be hyperactive and weakened in general. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the other side, the obstructed side is going to collapse too. Uh, but then I just look at the kind of the, the structure, the orientation. So if somebody's got cephalically oriented cartilages, that's like a sure tail sign. Like if you think about it, if your cartilages are pointing up towards the inside of your eyes, the medial canthal area, like they're just not providing the sidewall structure and support that they need. So again, mapping out their anatomy is probably uh, is, is just as important um, to understand if they're going to have external valve collapse after a septoplasty. And then all the other stuff, like the intrinsic cartilage strength and you know, yeah, the stuff we talked about. Of course. About. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure since you do and have done so much rhinoplasty, that, you know, you're just thinking when you look at the nose, you're kind of already thinking about what, you know, what is the, what is that structural framework look like underneath the skin? Because, right. you know, that's what you do. So, yeah, I mean, uh, rhinoplasty is, it's a very, it's, uh, I enjoy doing rhinoplasty a lot. And in a lot of ways, it's much, much tougher than like a pre-flap or, you know, some of these bigger, more, you know, tertiary cases. Um, because, you know, one is the aesthetic stuff of it, but even from the functional standpoint, like I said, it's like playing chess. You just have to kind of anticipate, uh, what's going on in that nose. And it's fun because it's like, it's an anatomical question and, you know, we're surgeons, you know, we like anatomy. Uh, so it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, you're playing this game with this nose and you're, you know, trying to figure out how it's going to behave. And that's why I really like rhinoplasty. It's a different, you know, type of procedure or surgery than some of the other surgeries that I do. And when we're talking about septoplasty being sort of a risk factor, not necessarily a risk factor, but that if you don't address the valve, I understand that we're probably talking about more of the caudal, right? The caudal septal deviation, not necessarily the bony septal septal deviation in the back. Well, I'll see in both times. Uh, so, you know, revision septoplasty in general, I see a lot of people with caudal septal deflections that just don't get addressed at the time of surgery. So when they come in, like I had a septoplasty and I couldn't breathe. And I always ask them like, all right, well, one, was it the same side before surgery that you couldn't breathe in? Or is it the other side? Did you have any relief when the splints came out? And then I look at them and usually a lot of times for revision septoplasty, I'll see these patients with like a caudal septal deflection that just wasn't touched. 
they, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a difficult place to address, you know, if you're not comfortable with the caudal septum, you know, it impacts the tip. There's like a lot going on, you know, yeah, your premaxillary spine, you know, there could be a fracture at the anterior septal angle. So a lot of surgeons just aren't comfortable with the caudal septum in general. But when it comes to, you know, septoplasty and external valve collapse after, I would say it's definitely in the cartilaginous septum, either mid-septum, caudal septum. Uh, I don't necessarily see it with people that have had bony septal deflections. That's a tough thing to correlate because, like I said, a lot of people are coming in and I don't necessarily know what their deviated septum looked like when they went to their other surgeon and had their first surgery. But caudal septal deflection, I'll tell you, definitely will correlate. But that's just, you know, in general doesn't even have to do with external valves. It's just, you know, it didn't, it didn't resolve with the first septoplasty because the first septoplasty didn't address that area. Yeah. And then another thing that I um, feel like is common, you know, patients are trying to find things to help them breathe better, you know, so like the breathe right strips. And then um, another thing I see is like the nasal cones, you know, they can kind of, mm-hmm. they stick in the nose and kind of prop it open. If a nasal cone works, is that more indicative of an external valve collapse or not uh, necessarily? It depends. I think it could be both internal and external. Um, You're just basically stenting open the entire airway. So it's going to push up on the internal valves. It's going to push up on the external valves. I don't don't know what you guys do in your practices. Do you guys use the cones or do you guys recommend them? I mean, it's an option for people who are just really, you know, don't want surgery at all, but feel like, you know, they need some help when they sleep or this, you know, but no, I wouldn't say that I use them a ton. I just know of them, I guess. Yeah, I exactly. see kids, so I'm just looking at the adenoids all day. <laughs> Maybe, you know, the cones will help those adenoids open up. But. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah, I see a lot of patients that come in that like say they've, you know, found them online. I have yet to meet, you know, maybe some doctors prescribe it, but uh, I would say, yeah, I've never prescribed it. But, I, you know, patients have definitely self-treated themselves with them in the past. And, you know, so they, there's something going on structurally is what it tells me. I just don't know what it is. Okay. So when do you start considering a surgical repair? If there's a clear line, and I tell patients this all the time, like, how do I decide, you know, if you need surgery? If I could draw a line from your complaint to your anatomy, then you're a good surgical candidate, right? Like if you told me I can't breathe out of my left side and, you know, that left side is collapsed and you got like a inverted V on that side and a deviated septum on that side and the nose is pinching on that side, then you're pretty much like a home run candidate, right? Like, like, all right, well, you know, let's, let's proceed with surgery because, you know, I can draw that line between your anatomy and your complaint. You know, somebody, you know, kind of has a lot of like confounding issues, the anatomy doesn't line up entirely, or I feel like they're undertreated, you know, for other medical issues, uh, then I'll consider doing sprays and steroids and irrigations and things like that. But usually by the time they've gotten to me, they're usually, you know, have been through to a lot of couple, a lot of ENTs or a lot of surgeons, and they've decided, you know, that they need a surgery. And when you're doing these surgeries, I mean, I'd love to get into um, some of the details of, you know, the technique. Um, I know it's not one size fits all, you know, every nose is different, but just in general, you know, are most of these patients going to require like an open rhinoplasty or do you do endonasal or do you, where do you get your cartilage? You know, these types of questions. What kind so, of local? <laughs> awake, asleep uh, uh, in awake, your clinic uh, in the hospital? Wait, am I am I awake or am I asleep? Uh, <laughs> so it's going to depend on the anatomy. All right, so let's just you know, internal nasal valve can be addressed pretty simply through a post approach. You know, you put some spreaders in there. You know, I do a full tricks, full transfixion incision. You know, approach the dorsal septum, create a pocket, and you know, do the septoplasty and put some septal cartilage in. That's pretty simple. When it comes to the external nasal valve from a functional standpoint, it's really going to depend on what those cartilages look like. If, it's, if they're really weak and they're cephalically oriented, then usually I'll reorient them and do an open rhinoplasty approach. But I have to caution the patient that usually this will change the way that your tip looks and, you know, will have some aesthetic impacts, usually for the better. Um, but you have to be very kind of uh, cautious with, with those kind of patients. If you don't need like that, you know, reorientation, then I usually do it through a closed approach. And you could do like a lower lateral strut graft where you're just dissecting off the vestibular mucosa uh, and you're placing it in a pocket along the piriform. And, you know, that usually will will secure it and, you know, create that sidewall strength for the external nasal valves. 
Do you, if if a patient's had had a septoplasty, where do you like to get your cartilage from if you can't get it from the septum? So I'm a I'm a big proponent of a patient's own rib graft or doing their own rib. One is the rib harvest technique I have is is pretty efficient. Uh, a lot of people go in and harvest the rib like on block, so they'll take the entire rib. Um, we do I do I was trained to do kind of like a like a in situ carving where I just remove I carve the rib while it's in the patient. Is it in situ? Is that the word? <laughs> like uh, where basically I just take the rib and I carve out what I need in terms of my graft. So it's like a 20 minute harvest. It's a, it's like little to no morbidity. And usually I offer a patient, you know, their own rib or like a cadaver rib. The reason I don't really like cadaver rib is I've seen it warp like right on the table. Like I'll put it in some saline and the thing just warps. There's no kind of real living tissue in it. It's like radiated, kind of be treated. So usually I would like to go to a rib. People, you know, sometimes will do ear cartilage, but that's just, I don't think gives you the strength that you need in, you know, the long-term outcomes. And again, we all have to kind of assess our long-term outcomes to see how we're doing, but I don't think you can go wrong with a, with a strong, you know, piece of rib that, you know, spanning the, the structure, the sidewall or the valves. So for the rib, is it kind of like, I don't know, skiving into, uh, skiving into it, like shaving to a certain depth that you need? Yep. So it's basically that's like, yeah, that's very yeah, cool. You're basically just carving in, you're just basically carving like a piece of, uh, like a canoe. You make like yeah. a little canoe shape, and just like a little car- V and then you just carve out and then you just, it, it's really efficient. It's been great. Uh, that's and patients great. don't complain of pain and you know, there's no risk of pneumothorax. I mean, I still tell my patients that there's a theoretical risk, but yeah. you know, I mean, I, I just don't think that you could because you're leaving a, a layer along the uh along the pleura so there's no way you can really get into it do you leave a penrose if you're just kind of carving a drain or anything for nope. the, the rib no harvester penrose, because it's just, just a canoe yep. like inside to it's minimal yep. and you just close it up just close it up the it's been really good it's treated me really well uh you can do it at a surgery center you know so it's uh, like i said like i offer both i always tell my patients you can have a cadaver rib or you can have your own rib and these are the you know the benefits and you know, the incision is really the big downside of, you know, your own rib, but, uh, you know, it's about a centimeter and a half to two centimeters uh, and most people don't mind it. Do you get chest x-rays afterwards? Nope. I mean, you know, patients have done well. Cool. Very cool. What kind of suture do you like? Don't, don't you have to suture the spreader grafts? Oh, so if I do it and do I don't know. I mean, I just, I think so in the pocket, really... I thought we used to, I, when I was a so for... resident. When I was for, a resident, we did. <laughs> That's actually a really, really good question. Um, so what, endonasal, I'll just do like a pocket. I don't need to suture it. But when I do it open, I'll do like a 5-0 PDS. But here's the, here's the kicker, which like, like took me a while to figure out when I was first coming out, is you got to use a taper needle. So this is stuff that people don't talk about, right? Like they're like, you know, they come out after, you know, doing a fellowship and they've seen their fellowship director, you know, suture in like a thousand spreader graphs. And then they come out and they're just like, why is this not working the way it worked, you know, with Dr. So-and-so like, and you begin to question and it's like the in- unspoken things. And that's, you know, for all the young listeners out there, definitely use a taper needle, especially in the beginning, um, because a taper needle won't shred and, you know, crush your cartilage and slice it into like a hundred different pieces. So that's you know, speaking from experience. <laughs> yeah, it's, there was some, you know, no one told me, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, just give me the purple PDS, please. Oh, it's the same color, but it's not working the same. Yeah. I must be the problem. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, the type of suture is a, is a taper 5.0 PDS. Yeah, that's such a good point, though. I've, I've had a similar experience where when you're new and you're coming out of training and you're you feel like you've set everything up just like, you know, you've always, you know, known to. And then I think we don't realize how much, you know, with our attendings, they work with the same nurses and scrubs. And, you know, there are certain things that just happen and are there for them without them verbalizing it. Um, right. That if you don't really pay attention, then it take, you have to kind of learn that the hard way sometimes. I've definitely <laughs> been in that same situation. One of the the other things you know, the 5.0 PDS, they come on like super long sutures. And, you know, when you're putting a spreader graph, you're like pulling out this really long suture. Yeah, it's going to yank on your cartilage. It's yanks. And so what I didn't realize is what my fellowship director is having done, again, one of those like unspoken things is he, he would cut off two thirds of the suture. 
So it looks so easy. You just pull through and it's just like, okay. And it took me, that's like a year of like, you know, pain in my life to figure that out. <laughs> do, do you guys have stories like that? Are you guys hard lessons learned when absolutely. you first came out? <laughs> yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really good point, actually. <laughs> I, I want to ask you uh, what your thoughts are on some of the newer technologies and devices that are coming along that address the the nasal valve. So, you know, like the Latera implant or the, you know, Vivair Aaron Med device, and there's probably more, but basically they're aimed at treating the nasal valve, but not in the way that we trained when we were speaking of, you know, rhinoplasty techniques. Or those butterfly, aren't there, wasn't there yeah. like something else at some point? So I'm going to caveat this with, I have a selection bias. So I've, right. you know, most of the people that come to me have failed those kind of interventions, but I haven't anecdotally, and I guess, you know, we're surgeons and we look at literature and all that, but I don't feel like um, patients have derived a lot of relief from those kind of uh, interventions. And on top of that, I feel like, uh, especially with the Latera, uh, I've had to take them out. They get infected. You know, conceptually, they feel they're fine. And, you know, like the conceptually, you're like, okay, you're addressing the valve in a structural way. But I've had to take them out because they've gotten infected and they cause problems. And in, in general, I don't really recommend using synthetics in the nose because, you know, even if, uh, you know, if you place it, you know, 20, 30 years from now, they can become infected. So uh, I don't offer that, but I surely tell my patient, like, this is an option, you know, uh, synthetics or lateras or implants. I don't do it. This is the reason why, but there's plenty of surgeons that will do it, but it's important for you to understand all the options available to you so that they don't feel like I cornered them into like a specific surgical procedure. Right. Right. Well, I think what you said is key, right? It's who you see. Um, and I think that that same sort of, if you do a lot of sinus, whether you balloon, don't balloon, like whether you do tympanoplasty, do you do bio design versus no, I always take fascia from the patient. I mean, right. Yeah. And in the, in the world of ENT, it, it's funny because it's like, you know, anecdotally from a personal standpoint, just the complexity of the valves from a structural standpoint, I feel like a lot of these stuff doesn't necessarily address it the way it should, you know, like, but they are more simplistic so that they could, you know, be used by a broader range of otolaryngologists. You know, do I necessarily believe that they're like a cure-all? No. And, you know, they probably have like an inherent value that like, you know, a certain amount of people will derive benefit. But I don't think it's like, okay, well, here's the Latera, you know, it's going to work in, you know, internal nasal valve class. Like, you know, I, I hope you guys could appreciate, like, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's wrong with a nose. And it's not just a matter of like, it's the internal nasal valve, here's a Latera, because it could be like the other things involved. So I feel like that attempt, especially in otolaryngology, to try and make procedures more accessible to a broader range of surgeons, just making it simpler. Uh, I don't necessarily agree that it, that patients will derive the benefit that they, that they should, you know, but it works in probably a subset of them. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine trying to take it out is kind of a pain if you're having to take it out for infection. Is that? Yeah. Uh, infection, but it's not even just infections. You know, a lot of patients are like uncomfortable. They're yeah. just like, I had this place and like, I can feel it. Skin. And like, yeah. And can you take that just, out in clinic? I usually, by the time they get to me, I don't. Cause then I'll usually do... I'll do a procedure, I'll take it out, and then I'll reconstruct the valve area as well. But then there was other things where people were like putting sutures, like um, MyTech sutures in like the infraorbital regions and then suturing yeah. them over to the valve, which, you know, conceptually makes perfect sense. They're like, all right, well, pulling up on your skin makes you feel better. I'm going to yeah. put this permanent suture and, you know, tack it down to your periosteum. Yeah. But, you know, all that stuff just falls out of favor. And, you know, I don't think, I think, you know, surgeons that did it before, they're not doing anymore because they probably had unhappy patients because it probably didn't work. But what do you what do you what do you like to use for local? What's your how do you numb up the nose? Uh, so usually just Lido with Epi if it's like a you know internal endonasal. But I started using TXA. I don't know if you guys are on the TXA train. Uh, tell me more. Uh, you guys have have you, you guys even heard of it down in Texas? No, tell us. Oh, I'm like telling big... you, all I do is tonsils, tubes, <laughs> and adenoids. So. Well, uh, there's this thing called TXA and I got to, you know, uh, it stands for, I'm going to have to, I'm going to butcher the tranexamic acid. Is that for nosebleeds? I've, I've, I think I've had the ER uh, use that for nosebleeds maybe. Yeah. So it's basically like a prothrombotic medication. 
uh, that will, you know, impact. And I'm not smart enough to tell you where, Let's, you know, get a real doctor here. But um, <laughs> basically, uh, the it impacts the uh, coagulation cascade and, and promotes some of the like clotting. So I'll mix that in like two or three mLs of uh, plain TXA uh, with uh, Lido with Epi. And I'll use that to inject like the soft tissue envelope of the nose it really cuts back on a lot of the swelling, like a lot. Interesting. Um, like if you go, if you go back to my Instagram and look at my on table results when I was first, like a couple of years ago when I wasn't using it to my on the table results with it, you'll see it's just a barely any swelling. It's, and then after I do my kind of osteotomies, uh, lateral osteotomies, I'll inject pure TXA just to kind of help those. It's the orthopods use it. That's where, you know, we hmm. got it from is they'll use it for joints and stuff but it helps reduce the amount of bleeding and it helps reduce the amount of swelling. You got to be careful not to, you know, there's some strict contraindications, people with cancer, people with clotting disorders, things like that. So definitely, uh, you know, take your time in figuring out which is the right patient to use it for. But now people are using it for facelifts, neck lifts, uh, rhinoplasty, uh, and now, you know, do it for, you know, nasal fractures and stuff Interesting. like that. Yeah, I had only heard of it for like a, like an epistaxis situation. So I, I didn't realize that that's the same TXA you were talking about for, you know, injections and local, but it makes sense uh, now that you're talking sinuses about Sinuses and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I'll do it for sinuses. You can give it IV, mm. not even just local. You can give it IV. It's like uh, one mig per kig oh. um, I, uh, IV. And, uh, you know, sometimes if I don't give it and with the anesthesiologist hasn't given it, I'll be like, hey, I'll notice like a lot more bleeding. And then I'll sit, I'll like, can you give some TXA? And then the bleeding, the oozing will stop. But ah, interesting. So for your sinus surgeries, you're doing the TXA IV, not like topical on a flagellate or not injected yeah, yeah, directly. I, it's IV. Okay. Well, uh, IV, uh, lately I've been experimenting with it on the flagellate. I'm like going crazy with the TXA at the surgery center. Like, <laughs> you put this thing in everything, vitamin <laughs> TXA. But uh, I've like been doing that, it that's a tracing back in the day. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's 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 worked really good, and um, yeah, it's like vitamin. Get some of that vitamin T. <laughs> what What do you um say, say again? Like when you mix it with your local, what's your uh, how much? So it's uh, basically uh, two mLs of plain TXA or three mLs to seven to eight mLs of lidocaine uh, with epinephrine once one hundred thousand. Okay. One percent, Yeah, one percent. Yeah. Cool. You just want to dilute it out so you're not like over injecting with like a prothrombotic agent into the nose. Right. And you and you feel like um, your post-op there's less less swelling, less edema. Oh yeah. I mean, even just like the like when I do like the osteotomies, people would come out like even three or four days later with just ballooned and just blue and like they hated me. And now I'll do the TXA and they come, they come to me a couple of days later and they just have like these little kind of like blue marks under their eyes. Awesome. It's been great. Yeah, that's great. So it's probably a good, good um, transition point to talk about post-op care and um, what that's like, you know, what, what are these, you know, what are you telling these patients? What are expectations, you know, time to recovery, different things like that. Can you talk about that? Uh, so just talking nasal valve surgery, you know, not the whole rhinoplasty, you know, rib and all that stuff with like nasal reconstruction, but. Usually I'll use splint, internal splints, silastics. If I reorient the lower lateral cartilages, I'll also put these external splints on the outside, on the nasal sidewalls. It helps prevent remigration or cephalic migration of those, those grafts. And usually I have them in there for about a seven to 10 days. It's kind of miserable, but, um, you know, you just don't want anything, any scarring to kind of, you know, contract and, and push down or migrate any of those grafts because that would be pretty detrimental. Usually I tell them, they have the mustache dressing under their nose and they, they'll typically bleed. It's like clockwork, you know, by 24 hours after the surgery, the oozing will stop and they don't need that mustache dressing. At that point, I have them start irrigating out their nose. So they'll irrigate out their nose about four or five times a day, you know, even with the splints in. And I tell them it's not going to get in. It's just really to get, keep the crust and the clot, the diplom bacteria or pulling on a stitch or pulling on a graft. Yeah, for your silastic splints and the external, um, the external splints that you're placing as well, are you cutting or carving those out of silastic sheeting, and how are you securing them? Um, you know, tape or sutures or how, what does that look like? So yeah, I use the thin silastic sheets. I don't use like the ones with the like the little tubes in them. Those are really thick and uncomfortable. As conceptually, patients are like, oh, I, I want that so I can breathe, but it, they never breathe and they're really thick and they kind of hurt the patient. So I put these silastic sheets on the inside and I secure that one with a 3-0 proline. 
And then I'll cut the sheets into little rectangles and put them on the nasal sidewalls as well. And kind of like, uh, kind of like a bolster and bolster down the sidewalls. And I'll use like a, like a 3.0 nylon for that. I don't know why I do nylon for one and proline for the other, but you know, the color difference, I don't know. It makes me like identify different parts of the nose and be like, it's easier to take out. I don't know. It's maybe voodoo. Who knows? <laughs> so when you do the sheeting inside the nose, do you roll it or just put it in flat along the septum? Like, are you rolling it as a lumen in a tube or just putting it in flat? So usually I put them on either side of the septum and then I have like the, the top edge of it roll up to like sit in the internal valve area. So like, I know a lot of people will trim the silastic. So it's just sitting flush against the septum and doesn't roll up Mm -hmm. in the, like the internal valves. So it gives it that support where you put the Yeah. So, and then you just sit there and you have to sit there for a week and pray that, you know, the graphs don't move, but yeah, it's been work. (laughs) It's worked great. And patients, you know, they have a lot of great, you know, it, the best part is when you take that stuff out and they can breathe great. And they're like, I haven't been able to breathe like this in years. And, you know, there's tears and hugs yeah. and, you know, they're naming babies after you. <laughs> um, but no, it's, <laughs> I like to have it roll up just a little bit to provide that support. And that comes out after you said seven to 10 days. Yeah. And then after that, just sailing for ever. <laughs> exactly. No, I, you could probably tell I'm a little on the aggressive side, but I'll tell them. I tell a patient to irrigate five times a day, they'll irrigate three. If yeah. I tell a patient to irrigate three times a day, yeah. they'll like never irrigate. So I tell them four to five times yeah. a day for the next six weeks until I see you at your second post-op. Just so that, again, you don't want to crust pulling on the septum, causing a perforation or migrating the septum or causing exposure of a graft. So yeah, I tell them about five times a day, just use the salt water rinse. We provide it. I give it to them for free. So like they don't like come back and say, I don't, I ran out of salt or I just want them to, yeah. you know, we're all surgeons. We want our patients to have the best possible outcomes. So, but usually I'm pretty aggressive with the irrigations and, you know. Is it a mist or like a Neil med? No, no, just irrigation. like a Neil med. The Neil med, the whole sinus irrigation. Okay. The sinus irrigation. Yeah. And the splint on the outside. So it's cut like a little rectangle and then put on the outside mm-hmm. of the nose and then just like secured as a mattress or... Does it go over the top? Yeah. Or? And then there's, so there's two, rec- it's actually four rectangles. So two go on the outside yep. and then two go on the inside of the nostril. And then you're kind of ah, like mattressing okay. like a little sandwich between the two okay, and it goes it. over the sidewall. It reduces the swelling got and it, it prevents everything from kind of like migrating. I see. Okay, cool. And then do you do things like in your practice, like Arnica or you know, are those things indicated or what, what kind of, what are the, what are your personal little things that you like for your patients that are like nuances? Um, So I do on my pre-op counseling, I have a whole page on like, you know, the herbal supplements and medications to avoid because of bleeding. And at the bottom, I'll also, you know, there's like the voodoo section. I tell them it's the voodoo section. I was like the vitamin C, the Arnica. And I tell them like, if they're feeling, you know, like motivated, then they can certainly do the protocol I have prescribed down there, but there's no real literature to support it. Um, so some patients do it. Some patients don't, I haven't really couldn't tell you differences or not. You know, some patients go crazy. I had a patient the other day come in they're like, I've been on Arnica for a year. And I was like, I didn't tell you to be on Arnica for a year. Like, you know, you can come off of it. <laughs> um, so, uh, from that standpoint, you know, I don't, there's no herbals or, or over the counters that I will prescribe or tell them it's just there, they're, they want to do it. But really it's the, the post-op care that I'm pretty vigilant about. Like the, the worst that, you know, some of the worst things that'll happen is like a patient doesn't irrigate, they get like a big crust that pulls on like their stitch and then all of a sudden they have graft exposure and then you have to do like a composite graft and then it's like, or it migrates or it's just, uh, you know, if you're going to do these kind of more aggressive type things in the nose, you just have to make sure that it's like a clean, healthy healing environment so that like, you know, maximize their, their benefit. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Well, what else What else are we missing? Any, Ash, am I missing anything? No, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. Mustafa, is there anything you want to leave our, our <laughs> listeners with? Anything that we've failed to ask you that are big, you know, big pearls, big do's or don'ts? <laughs> no, I just hope that, you know, well, I, honestly, I hope I just didn't bore you guys. You're like, you know. <laughs> no, this is great. <laughs> I, I like have a whole new appreciation <laughs> for like, the lower lateral cartilage. Uh, oh yeah, right? that's the whole. D- and and you reminded me, phallically oriented is towards the head. So that was that yeah, was good. <laughs> it's uh, I could do like my uh, trilogical thesis on like this lower lateral cartilages. Uh, no, honestly, like listen, I know we live in a world where like we're all kind of like you know crazy systems have taken over our clinics and we're forced to see like you know patients and 
fortunately I'm in a position where, you know, private practice is a little more, you know, merciful, but you know, I think the most important thing, especially if you're younger or you're starting off or you really want to do nasal surgeries is, you know, the evaluation is everything. You want your patients to be happy after surgery. So you want to make sure you know what the problem is because you want to make sure that the solution you have is going to help them. Nobody wants an unhappy patient, right? Like you don't want to do a septoplasty on somebody that has like allergies because they're still going to have allergies after surgery and then they're going to have an unhappy patient and nobody wants that. So you know, when it comes to the nose, there's enough stuff going on in there that you just got to have to look at it from an anatomical medical standpoint and really just figure out, you know, what's the best way to help this person. Great advice. That's a, it's a great way to end it. Um, great way to put a pin <laughs> in it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so well, much. For me. Thank you. This was fun. It's a, it's a good refresher. Very comprehensive too. So if patients or our listeners, if our listeners want to find you, are you on, uh, you mentioned your Instagram? Yeah. So uh, NYC FaceDoc on Instagram. Uh, also NYCFaceDoc.com is my website. I recently got a TikTok. I'm not a TikTok doc, but uh, are you dancing? No, no. One of my patients was a oh. TikTok influencer and I just, I honestly made a TikTok so I could follow her to follow my swelling to see how it was how my nose. <laughs> so you could keep so like it with check, your post up. I could check in on my nose. Um, so I do have a TikTok, but there's not much on there. I mean, if patients want to get a hold of me, uh, you know, my uh, my website, nycfacedoc.com or my Instagram's a great way to nycfacedoc.com. Awesome. Well, awesome. thanks for taking the time. That was fun. Well, thanks for having me. If you Thank guys are ever you. in New York, you know, look me up. Yeah, will do. For sure. I'm going to, I'm just first, I'm going to start with TikTok first. <laughs> Um, come, I'll come and I'll dry your nose for you. I'll not nice. out your yes. nose for you. <laughs> for sure. Hang it in my frame. Absolutely. Cool, cool. All right. That's right. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks yeah. for having me, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Kieran Yen with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.